when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain un... What's that word there? Unalienable. With certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states! Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, the church, and beer. Welcome to this post-July 4th episode. I'm your host, Tim Curley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton Pierce. How are we two days after Independence Day? Doing good. Um, Things are running in fours right now. Um, it's a Thursday, um, which is technically speaking, well, it all just depends on how you count your days, but it's the fourth day of the week. Um, that's how I count it. And then uh, July 4th on Tuesday, and uh, last night, Tim and I went for our fourth win in a row at Trivia Night, so... Uh, oh yeah, I already forgot about that. Jeez. Things are running really well glorious. for us. And they said that we're, uh, we're the villains now. Uh we walk in, everybody rolls their eyes, doesn't want to see us. We don't even get loud. We don't get obnoxious. We just sit there and just play trivia, but... It's just business. That's right. We just walk in and we just act like it's what we do every day. Because yeah. <laughs> we know lots of things. Totally. <laughs> totally important things. They said we had big heads last night. No, I mean, if you're listening to this right now, you might be like... The... You'd You're like, two guys yeah. who think you know a lot about the Bible <laughs> oh, on a podcast, wow. so clearly you have big heads. <laughs> I say stop giving us easy categories. <laughs> no, uh, so uh, good. Summer's in full swing. 
having a good time. Fourth of July was great. We partied over here on Tuesday, had a good time at your house, swimming in the backyard. Uh, uh, Tim was beating out Arby's for who had the meats. <laughs> um, so it was good. Uh, we had lots of sausage, lots of tri-tip. Um, lots of all kinds of different sausage. Yeah. As an appetizer. And then two big tri-tips and people brought all kinds of food and chips and desserts hung out in the like. pool all day drank beer drank beer smoked cigars and what was really awesome was i think i was asleep by like nine o'clock which was just like prime <laughs> i didn't even have to like watch fireworks and stuff because i mean like that's going to be my life from now on when i have like a kid like it's going to yep. be like all right we got to go watch fireworks at somebody's house Co- colin's gonna be coming over here doing fireworks with my grand ch- grandchildren that's right i'm gonna be bringing over a big old box of fireworks which i was very grateful to not have to spend any money on it yeah actually like, oh, we didn't have the grandchildren this year at in the evening so was like, it was yes. it was that was a hundred dollars saved yeah exactly right and i was like thank goodness we uh, spent on those two growlers i got though from dust bowl oh i knew you were gonna bring that <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't your fault that was uh we're gonna put that on christina um, <laughs> we had uh, two growlers that came from Dust Bowl. One was the Fruit Punch Triple IPA. I think it's called Punch Bowl. Um, yeah, it's uh, it tastes like Fruit Punch. Like, I'm not gonna take that away from it. So you are getting what you are drinking. Um, so if you expect Fruit Punch, it it's Fruit Punch. Um, it is, and it's a triple IPA, although it says it's 8.1% alcohol. I would say that's probably on the Julian scale, and if you're listening to this, none of you, it's an inside joke, but basically a brewmaster around here a couple years ago, we, we, we came up with the theory that his scale was off by 1, two, one to 2% one way or another on a lot of the beers, and he pretty much owned it, so... Um, because some of the beers would say it's nine percent, and you drink it, and it would hit you right away. And then other beers didn't taste like they had that much alcohol in them. It was right. usually on the high. It was usually the other way around, though, that it was advertised lower than it was, and so that became the Julian scale, and that's what that fruit punch was. It said eight point one. It drank like it was a fourteen. It just, and I, I have this theory that beer does that i don't know if it's how it's cooked or what are but it just seems like certain beers just enter the bloodstream the alcohol gets right into the bloodstream much quicker than other beer and that one was i got half through half a cup and i was nope i'm done i've had enough he did have it at the end of his day after like sitting in the sun and all that kind of stuff this is true but you know but i was intentionally doing that as well yeah, and then we had, uh, I don't even know what the other one was. I think was it's called. called Jack Hammond, I think, if I remember right, the name. Something. I don't even know what it was. Uh, I Here's what I think. I don't think that the, I can't judge the beer yet until I've had it, um, like, actually, like, in a can or in a, or maybe on tap at the brewery, because maybe... Maybe they had a bad batch of it or something, but golly, was that stuff not good. <laughs> and Tim was like, oh, this will be perfect because we give Dust Bowl too much love. And I mean, like, I love Dust Bowl, and so I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that I just got, like, a real 
sediment heavy beer or something. And when it we poured it, oh my gosh, you couldn't even like see through it. It was pineapple juice. Yeah, it was it pineapple like. juice. I think they I think they just tried something and you didn't like it. I I could see other people liking it. I could see why you heartily disliked it though. It tasted uh, like there was something wrong with it. Is what it tasted like to me, but I don't know. Oh, and dump dump trucks of the gods is out. That's what I should have had and got. There's okay, Jack Burton. Yeah, Jack Burton. Seven point three, an IBU three thirty seven, hazy IPA Vermont yeast. Ah, you said you tasted the yeast. I did not. Uh, brings a fruity fermentation. Blah 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 blah. So. Yeah, it, ha- it had that, like, yeast taste. I was like, ah. Not for me. That's how they intended to make it. Not for me. Now, that being said, if I went to the brewery, I would get, like, a taster of it and just be like, let me make sure that that's what I tasted. Well, that's why I wanted a crowler and not a growler. Yeah, but now you got two cool growlers. I do. <laughs> So the other one was Porch Punch, but they don't even have a... Oh, yeah, that's what it was called. They don't even have a description for it on here. They had one earlier in, earlier last week, or earlier this week. Anyway, so... Yeah, uh, I tried that one at the brewery, and because I didn't have it here. I was like, nope, I know what that one tastes like. I am well aware. Well, we had an abundance of beers, because uh, everybody always brings beer. We had... Firestone beers and Sierra Nevada beers, and we had other Dust Bowls, and we had what else am I think? Oh, a Riley's, which is a brewery up in Clovis. I think technically they're Madeira, oh, okay, but they have a location in Clovis. Um, and then I don't remember what else, but there was had a lot. Some stone. We had that's right. We had Stone. We had their. Best Buy 7423. That was tasty. It was tasty. A little high in the alcohol for me. It was 9%. 9%. Yeah, I was. A little, it's a lot. I'm trying to drink all day in the in the heat, but I had a couple. Oh, no, I had the last one left. Yeah, yeah, the last one. I had two. Uh, and we're drinking beer this evening. We started off by hydrating. Um, yeah, this that, is no joke. With that Rocky Mountain water. Um, we're drinking a Coors Light right now to shout out to everybody um, that thinks that we don't indulge in in tasty beer for your standards. So uh, we're drinking a Coors Light. Going with a silver bullet can. Mm-hmm. It's not a summer chill can, but it's okay. Uh, the mountains are blue. Uh, and delightful. And then also we're going to be drinking a cold IPA. Um, it's from Stone. It's called the Oside Oasis. Um, which is a dank and tropical double India pale ale cold IPA coming in at 8.9% ABV. So... And this is part of their One Batch Dispatch series. Um, if you guys haven't, we've talked about it a couple times already that Colton's on a email list that Stone sends out. And basically they say like, hey, we're doing this One Batch. Um, so if you'd like to try this beer, um, we'll can it up. But then once it's sold out, it's gone. So um, just kind of as a way for testing stuff out. We've tried a couple of different ones on here before. So 
Um, they also do they do dispatches, which is they make one batch and they dispatch it, or they do um, from their vaults. So uh, there's lots of different uh, bastard ales that are flying around right now that they're bringing out of their vaults from X number of years. Um, barley wines. Uh, we had that. What was that? A brute IPA? Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. Um, so just kind of fun stuff um, to try. And if that's something that you're interested in, you can go onto Stone's website and you can sign up really easily and they'll send you emails. And I get one like once a week and they're just like, hey, this is and it's something new every week. They go back and forth. So the first one week it'll be they're pulling something out of their vault. So if you want to order it, you can do that. And then the next week it'll be they're doing a single batch dispatch. So um, and it's nice. And you can decide, yeah, do I want that or no? I'll just pass. So fun stuff. So the O-Side Oasis is an ode to their original location in Oceanside. Nice. Which is still there, but it's uh, that's their first first right. tap room in Oceanside. And now if you were like think about Stone and the brewery itself, you go to Escondido. That's where the the big beer garden area is. Which is inland from San Diego. Yeah. It, yeah, it's about like 20 minutes outside of Oceanside. No, it's like... 30 minutes outside of Oceanside. And it's about 25 minutes out from San Diego. There it is on their website. One Batch Dispatch. Stone Oceanside. Wow. Props to Stone as well. They got one hell of a website, website company. <laughs> this is slick. And we're hoping, if you're paying attention at home, we're hoping, Colt and I are hoping to take a little trip down to San Diego at the end of July. July, yeah. Need to book those rooms. Uh, All right. So, as I said at the opening, post-July 4th. So, we're going to offer some thoughts about July 4th. Some of you are going to be like, you guys have already beat this horse to death. Well, I'm actually going to kind of go a different way because I was going we, to. We got a little, we got a little blowback from the Memorial Day uh, episode. There was some feelings that we were a little harsh, and uh, I, I try to be mindful on this podcast that when something is not heard the way I thought it, that I take I take responsibility for not communicating well enough. And instead of blaming the listener and saying, well, you didn't hear me. Now, if somebody wrote in and, sa- and said, you said this, and I can go back and listen to it, it's 180 degrees from what I said, then that, that's on you for um, misinterpreting. Mis- mis- just not hearing what I said at all. Right. But it was more overall the tone. It wasn't specifically words. Um, it was just kind of, and so uh, our friend Andy was, I don't know if it can, he, he, he was intrigued by what we had to say. And so I pointed out to him that, you know, there's sometimes, and I don't, it's not just done for kicks. It's done in, intentionally because I think it's kind of a muscle, so to speak, an intellectual muscle. All of us as Christians need to start using that we don't use most of us, we just sit there and sponge up whatever we're told. It's all just kind of, uh, it's passive learning and there's never any, 
not only questioning, but also just challenging oneself to seeing if maybe an uncomfortable viewpoint might be the more Jesus centric viewpoint. And sometimes that's a failed exercise, but I think in, I was sincere in what I said about Memorial day. Um, but it was also just kind of an exercise of most of us, most of you probably listening to this, but even if, if, even if that's not the case, certainly a good portion of the country goes to church, they hear a positive message, the flag, the cross, everything's wrapped up into one thing. And as we said, I thought we made clear on that episode, it's not terrible if it happens. You're not a terrible Christian. Our church even did it. A shock as we were shocked that our Anabaptist church was also quite patriotic on Memorial Day. I was not put off by it one bit. I was surprised just because I didn't expect it. Um, and that's probably my fault and and just over assuming that that message wasn't going to get told to placate a lot of people because most of the people that go to our church aren't really Anabaptists. They, they probably don't even know what that term means. Uh, but again, just hearing something a little counter countercultural to what we're used to, just to make, just to kind of check ourselves and make sure we're not following into bad habits of just, uh, getting into bad theology, mixing theology, uh, proper doctrine, you know, the doctrine and the dogma that we really need to follow with cultural things, which is frankly, folks, 90% of what we hold on to is the church culturally changing over the years and adapting the Bible to what the culture wants and needs. And that's probably something we'll get into in an episode or two in the future, because it's something Colton and I've been listening more and more to with our friend Dan McLaughlin. He's very much pointing that out. But anyway, um, and, and, because of that, it's fine to, when the culture says it, to kind of wrap the flag around it to some extent. But so anyway, all that said, we went hot and heavy into Memorial Day and kind of pushing back a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to, this this week, I'm not going to speak about church and what your church did for July 4th. I, I could care less. But just as a Christian and a Jesus-centered Christian, I have to say, I am, and I have a much more negative view of Christ, of America than I used to in my 20s and 30s. That's political stuff that's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter. I still get emotional on July 4th. Uh, everybody left our house. Colton, you said, uh, you know, you were home at 9.30. I think final last bit of folks left our house at 10.30. I wasn't quite ready to go to bed, and I do what I now do as a ritual every year. I turn on episode two of John Adams, which is the episode where they draft the Declaration of Independence. And every single time, I know it well enough. I know what the lines are going to be, but I still find it highly highly emotional that these guys got together, risked being hanged by the king for treason, because that's what they were committing was treason, and put together not a perfect document, Jesus wasn't in the room, it wasn't God-breathed, God but the Declaration of Independence and then the subsequent uh, Constitution are two of the greatest human experiments at trying to govern oneself that have ever been created. Full stop. And I get it, I find that 
important to celebrate. It doesn't have anything to do with my faith. Um, again, it's not because I'm celebrating, oh, look, they created this perfect place for God, for, for Jesus people to, to thrive and everything. It has in large part, but just as a secular bit of history, it is a phenomenal thing to celebrate, and I have no problem celebrating it. Yeah, I think this will be my time to clean up house on Memorial Day. I think, I think, yeah, we can be, I think understanding where we come from, what we're trying to present, and I mean, I know that, I I mean, I wasn't the one that had this conversation, um, so I don't necessarily know. But like you said, it was more of the tone that we took and that kind of stuff. I think that what we had originally talked about on Memorial Day was there are certain, and I use this word, and I don't mind using it now, and mainly because it was more of a word of warning. Um, and again, we wanted people to think about it where it was about how much should your country, your patriotism, how much should that play a role in your church life? And the answer, if you look in scriptures, is none. And so just understanding that anything that ever happens on a Sunday morning that is that promotes uh, this American image or whatever um, – is not aligned with scripture and no matter how much you want to sit there and say well the founding fathers uh were these christian men who did x y and z um and they could do all this stuff and this is a christian or god's country so to speak um that's okay for you to say um just again what we talked about was understanding that there is a level of propaganda that exists within um, the Christian culture in the United States that promotes this, to which if you went to other countries, that would not exist. Like you don't go into uh, you don't go into other countries and go to church in there and there's a flag for the country in there. If anything, they want that separation of church and state like the church wants it they don't want to be affiliated with anything that the government's doing um and those types of things so um that's kind of difficult um and just that was our main thing and again like i said uh anytime there's ever a fourth of july memorial day it doesn't bother me it's not like i sit there and i'm steaming or anything it's just something to be aware of to just be like this is something that that is not really necessary to the Christian experience. Being a part of the United States does not make it that way. Um, but when it comes to the 4th of July um, and celebrating the United States, I think that there is something that needs to be said about just being grateful um, for the opportunities that we are given because we are in this, uh, this westernized state um, there, the fact that I'm able to get on this podcast and, and criticize, uh, the involvement of them in my religion or possibly just about my, and the fact that I'm able to choose whatever religion I want to be a part of, um, th the freedoms that I'm guaranteed 100% absolutely grateful for that. Um, 
And those types of things, I hope, get spread to the world, but not the, and what this is where you talked about it earlier, where it's like, there are things that I'm not proud of that this country does, where I don't think we need to sit there and be the savior or whatever. I don't buy into that American message, but I do believe in what I have been given. And I would love it for other people that don't have that to have that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that it needs to come on the back of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and also understanding that there's a lot of other political stuff that comes into all of the, that kind of stuff. But I do, I am extremely grateful for what I've been given and I love it and I don't want to force it on anybody if nobody wants to accept it. Uh, but I'm also like, I wish that you had those opportunities as well. And I'm extremely grateful um, for everything that this country uh, has for us. And again, this is something where it's like, I hang a flag out in front of my house for the 4th of July. I, I fly an American flag. Again, I am an American. Like, that's part of who I am. That's where I'm from. Um, but also at the same time, I recognize that uh, – I also recognize that I don't put that as my first sense of identity. It is always I am one with Christ first. And I am a member of this human race before I am an American every single time. And so I will always put, I do not put my Americanism above the needs of other people that are from other parts of the world um, because we're all a part of one human race. It's not that we're a tribe um, because the entirety of the human race is a tribe, in my opinion, as opposed to just being us. And so we take care of our own. Um, and just kind of breaking that mindset is just kind of something that needs to be thought of. It doesn't mean that you can't take pride in who you are, but I think that it needs to come second when it comes to other people from around the world. Yeah. Um, because you need to view them just as, as, just as much as family as you do your American brothers and sisters. Well, <laughs> so I started this out by saying I was too negative about Memorial Day and, and – truly meant what I said about July 4th, but I'm going to now take a turn <laughs> towards the negative. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I can't help myself from just being a bit contrarian to what we're spoon-fed, but uh, look, as I said, there isn't another country with all of its profound flaws, particularly today in 2023, there's no other place on the planet I'd rather live. I've visited many countries around the world, most of Europe. I've been to Africa, Central America. Um, they're all great. Um, they're pl great places to visit, um, maybe even stay long term. But I have no, no desire to live anywhere else but this country because of the freedoms that the architecture of the system is supposed to create to give us. That said... Freedom is not a Christian value. And I think you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. I think freedom's great, and it is clearly the case that it is easy, it is truly easier for Christianity to thrive in a free society. Um, although well, one might challenge that, one might be able to challenge that supposition today because as free as we are, we're going the other way. Um, but as we stated in the Memorial Day episode, it is not 
Christian to hope that other people around the world get freedom as some way of, again, achieving some Christian value. Um, Christianity is certainly not opposed to it, but, and it's certainly proper to pray for Christians who are being persecuted in totalitarian, authoritarian states or states that have uh, tribalism, like, you know, a state that's got, not to pick on Muslims, but it may be part, it's majority Muslim and minority Christian, and the Christians are being persecuted. Um, those are certainly things to, to pray about, to want to go away, to even seek intervention where the church can step in and help these folks that are in those situations. But freedom in and of itself is not, again, some moral, some Jesus-centered value that we are supposed to pursue. It's a cultural value. And again, it's a phenomenal one. And it's one that works best, I think, in the world. But don't confuse the two. Because then we just when then we're just repeating the Crusades of 600 years ago, and I know it is still a parlor game, particularly on the right in this country, particularly right wing or religious uh, Christian scholars to justify the Crusades, and you can justify why the Crusades started, but it pretty much ends after that. It is disingenuous, I am sorry, to defend any of the Crusades. None of the behavior that actually happened, again, whether the motivations and were proper or not, I think that's debatable, what the goals were. <laughs> we should do an episode on this. Just go through and list just some of the atrocities <laughs> that the Crusaders engaged in on their way not just in the middle east to the saracens but on their way in europe to other christians and then on their way back there's nothing to justify it and so again when we just start blindly following what are cultural values modern cultural values and say those are christian ones it can lead us into getting into some bad actions and at the worst, you're, we're talking the Crusades or uh, the Inquisition. Uh, oh, then, yeah, and then, well, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of punk music anyway, so I'm just saying, well, I mean, we're all <laughs> slaves to consumerism it's anyway. True. So <laughs> I get up, I go to work, I spend eight hours at a job to just continue living. And then... I do it all again. Yeah. Every day. Five days a week. I'm not working right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One other thing. If you're interested... If you're interested in some different perspectives, I think one perspective is spot on. I don't even... I don't think it's debatable. Um, the other, the second point is, uh, it's, it's an interesting one that I don't think that we as Americans don't look at at all because where we're, where we're at today. And, uh, as they say, the victors, uh, write the history books. Yeah. Uh, so I have a friend of mine, uh, Greg Frazier. I, he was my offensive coordinator when I played football in high school. 
when I then uh, graduated high school and a couple years later got asked to coach on the team and had the honor of being the defensive coordinator. Greg was still the offensive coordinator and remained so as long as I was coaching on that team for almost 10 years. And so uh, he became, he was a friend and a mentor and all kinds of other things. And he, that's his side gig or was his side gig. He's not coaching football anymore. Uh, His day job was a professor at Masters College. Masters College is a Christian college in Southern California, northern, north part of Los Angeles. It is the university college for Mass, uh, uh, sorry, John MacArthur's church. Uh, And he is a history professor there. And he's written two books on the founding. One is called... And I recommend everybody read them. They're a bit pricey because they're academic books, and you know, academic books get marked up by a ridiculous fee. But Damn, Pearson. I know. Uh, the first one's called The Religious Beliefs of American Founders, Reason, Revelation, and Revolution. Um, and he basically, in his book, lays out a very compelling, I think, comp- thoroughly convincing case that both the modern left and the modern right are incorrect, that the... Um, founding fathers weren't anything remotely close to what we would call mid- modern Christians, let alone not even evangelicals, but just modern, even non, uh, a sect, just sectarian Christianity with Methodism or Presbyterianism. And that the left is incorrect in claiming that they're simply deists. And what he argues is it's somewhere in between that they had a what do you call it, a theistic rationalism. And so they it was this, it's, you know, this moralistic view that's based on that, that there is a God and that reason suggests that there are right and wrong and these kind of things, and that's what animated them. And I, it's a very helpful book because it kind of tamps down, again, both on the right and the left, a lot of this discussion about uh, separation of church and state, and other issues, and then again, what gets really running rampant in particularly evangelical circles of that the founding documents are these just God-breathed inspirations from God, that God was in the room, and they're just these magical, perfect expressions of what God views, uh, what government should be, and, and just really thoroughly destroys both. And this guy, Greg, he's teaching at a very conservative, not evangelical, but fundamentalist college. Um, but he's he, he lays out a very good argument, and I think a lot of people need to read and, and understand. And then the second book is even, this one's, this one's an interesting one. His follow-up is called God Against the Revolution. Again, we're talking about a guy from MacArthur's church. The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the American Revolution. And all this is, this isn't an argument against the American Revolution. He is simply going through and pointing out that contrary to popular opinion today, or uh, I think conceived notions by most people, that the uh, revolution at the time was much more closer to 50-50. There was, there was a lot of conflicting loyal, loyalists in the United States. A lot of those loyalists were Christian clergymen. A lot of that was based on uh, nonviolence, belief in nonviolence, that, that Jesus and 
Christianity should teach nonviolence. And so he lays out that case very well. Again, he's not arguing in the book that that's the proper view of the revolution necessarily and that there shouldn't have been. But it is a, I think it's a worthwhile thing that we don't, even in left-wing colleges, I think, in history departments read enough of, that, that there's act, there was a strong loyalist faction within the revolution. Um, and some of those folks got persecuted, particularly up in the more... Uh, in the Northeast, up in Massachusetts and Vermont and all that, where uh, revolutionary fervor was a lot more um, heated than it was down south in North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. So anyway, again, just kind of in the spirit of everyone kind of continuing to challenge preconceived notions and not even within our historical viewpoints of just falling into these a uh, uh, mindless sort of sixth grade history views of of our history or 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 the world because we challenge that's been central to our the podcast of challenging that what we instead of sixth grade what we call a uh, bible school view of the bible that just never grows out of this uh, vacation bible school Sunday morning Bible school uh, mentality of just, you know, the flood, it was great, and God just killed everybody. Wonderful. And then he did a rainbow, and everything's all great. Yeah. Um, so. The good old Noah's Ark comedy bit. Uh, you know. Tim Hawkins. Yeah, just the nursery. The yeah. nursery. So I got, I'll never understand parents who will paint Noah's Ark on their kids, little kids' bedroom walls. It doesn't make sense. Noah's Ark's a great story, but it's just out there, man. It's like, Daddy, what are you doing? I'm painting Noah's Ark on your wall, sweetheart. My favorite story. You know where God sends a worldwide flood to kill every living thing? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. Hey, get, grab a brush and paint some screaming people on that rock for me just to make it real. It's going to be great. Look in the baby's room. I painted the stoning of Stephen. You're going to love that. <laughs> Those birds? No, those are locusts coming to kill you! That's what they're <laughs> Oh, yeah. Have you been listening to anything recently? Oh, uh, what have I been listening to? I've been listening to a lot of Dire Straits, who I find are very, very underrated. My they're one of those bands that are they're just... They're not underappreciated. I think people who really like music are like, oh, yeah, Dire Straits are really, really good. But uh, they're just not widely wide, widely listened to. Uh, I've been listening primarily to their seminal album, Brothers in Arms. That's the one that's got money for nothing on it. But Brothers in Arms is a spectacular, amazing song. They've also got Romeo and Juliet on it, which is really good. It's just Mark Knopfler at his great his best on guitar. His voice is similar to uh, uh, your boy that you've been listening to, uh, Bob Dylan. It's a little weird. It's not you know it's not your usual voice. You're, it's it's in that Bob Dylan pop, Tom Petty like acquired taste. Um, but the musicianship, the lyrics, all the stuff that he's involved in doing. I mean, the guy actually, and he also did, Mark Knopfler is also responsible for doing movie scores. I'm pretty sure he did the movie score for Princess Bride hmm. and the title song 
that's either at the beginning or the end. I think it's at the end when the credits roll. That's Mark Knopfler. So, uh, really good. I have been, uh, well, uh, Fallout Boy came out with their uh, parody of We Didn't Start the Fire last week. Um, so since then, I've been on a pop punk kick. Um, for those of you that are unfamiliar with pop punk, uh, most people consider it uh, emo music. Um, it's not. It's not metal. It's not. Uh, some of it has screaming. I don't really listen to the screamo stuff. So if you're familiar with the term screamo, that's where the people growl or is what they say happens in there, um, or the screams. Um, that's not typically my vibe. I'm actually a little young to be a pop punk fan. Um, I think it just kind of stemmed from the fact that my dad worked with youth, um, for, uh, the early thousands. And so, uh, those cultures kind of bled into, uh, mine. So uh, we had a lot of that culture around in my house when I was growing up of just a lot of pop punk, um, my dad didn't really listen to it, but it was just the sounds of, again, teenagers and what they wanted to listen to when they could. And, and, uh, like a lot of the Christian music at that time took on that kind of genre. Um, and so, you know, if you're thinking about Christian bands like Switchfoot, Reliant K, um, those guys had more of a pop punk sound when they first came out. Now they're kind of a little poppy themselves, but, uh, when they first started, it was, you know, heavy guitar, um, and kind of where it went from there or, uh, what's an, uh, what's his name? Hawk Nelson. Mm-hmm. Those are guys that did pop punk. So, um, so, but by the time I hit seventh, eighth grade, when you would be that emo emotional kid, um, you know, fallout boy was already on their hiatus. Um, uh, what's the other uh the other one that my wife likes to listen to which they're breaking up this year um they'll be done um panic at the disco they were yeah they're um so those were those are still a little earlier for my time like i write sins not tragedies that probably came out when i was like in the fourth or third grade and i wasn't listening to it then or anything um my chemical romance still way older than me um, but these are just sounds and people that I listened to growing up. Uh, so, uh, and we talked about it the other night where we were like, yeah, Blink-182 kind of shaped what the sound of pop punk would be, um, based off of their popular, uh, stuff. And you could probably sit there and argue that other people have shaped it as well. Um, but I'm just saying though, because of how popular Blink was, it allowed for other people to prosper, um, in that genre and that kind of stuff. Um, so Paramore, uh, went on sleeping with sirens, uh, uh, some for, uh, yeah, some 41, uh, lots of other ones. Um, good stuff. It's been fun. I'm, you don't need to check up on me. I'm okay. Um, <laughs> Tim can tell you that there's no wrist slits on my no, wrist no, right no. now. I just, uh, just nice uh, sometimes listen to nostalgic music, um, from when you were a teenager, um, and really enjoy it. So, um, that's what I've been listening to recently. So, uh, you can check up on me. If you see me, you'll be like, are you okay? And I'll be like, I'm just fine. Thank you. (laughs) Not depressed. Um, but having a good time jamming out in the, in the car. So, well, that's a good segue to let's revisit Christian music 
and oh, the, super, the, super chick would have been another one. Yeah, yeah, the Christian in, industrial complex. So this, there's an article in Christianity Today, which again, if you're not familiar with that publication, it's basically well, continue to not be familiar with that. Uh, yeah, publication. it's it's, it's it doesn't have the cachet it used to. Uh, it's much like Time Magazine. It's probably the good example of it. It's used to be the time. It was the preeminent magazine for Christianity, particularly evangelical circles. Um, this article is from April of this year. And it is about, it's titled, I'll put the link to the article in the show notes. It is titled, Our Worship is Turning Praise into Secular Profit. So the article talks about uh, the song Lion and Lamb by Leland Mooring, or goes by Leland, how big the song became. Um, And then I'll jump in after it kind of talks about how popular. Well, I'll jump in here. The song continued popularity means congregations lift those powerful words in praise each week as Mooring and his co-writers Industry veterans Brenton Brown and Bethel Music's Brian Johnson hoped, and each time churches like Anderson sing Lion and the Lamb, it adds up, especially if the service is live-streamed for Christian music licensing companies, corporate labels, and private investors who come to see the Christian corner of the industry as a previously untapped income string. A portion of the rights and royalties for Mooring Song, which would have uh, been continuously paid out to the song's creators and label, were sold at auction in 2020 as part of a $900,000 package to a private investor. The bundle of songs had made $156,393 the year before, more than three quarters from the use of The Lion and the Lamb. The investor who made the winning bid was quoted an industry pro- uh, projected return of 15%. So he's expecting 15% on that. Uh, the words and melodies that stir hearts to worship each Sunday are intellectual property on the market, caught up in a recent surge of acquisitions across the music industry. The investment activity has become a, quote, feeding frenzy, according to industry executive Hartwig Masich, with worship uh, hits a, when with worship hits a small part of billions invested in IP and royalty streams. Uh, as churches worldwide sing, play, live stream songs like Lion and the Lamb, How Great Is Our God, and 10,000 Reasons, the popularity of these songs are, has ushered Christian music further into the mainstream music industry and the vast economic ecosystem adjusting to make a profit in a new era. It goes on and on. Oh, goes on and talks about... Uh, I'll read the next paragraph. And, Trends toward IP acquisition, lucrative arena tours, and corporate consolidation have helped drive record-setting revenues. Over the past two years, the touring industry saw $6.28 billion in 2022, and recording revenues in the U.S. reached an all-time high of $15.9 billion, growing for the, second, uh, for the seventh consecutive year. Many Christian artists, including those whose careers and and brands are built on worship are benefiting from this growth. So, and then they talk about how this is nothing new. Uh, People have been making money on psalm books going back to the 1640s. So, it is nothing new. But, (laughs) so, 
You well, let me just circle back to the article. If you're listening to this and you're not sure, most of us who go to church have no idea how the ins and outs of how worship work. And just so if you didn't pick up on it when I was blitzing through that argument uh, article reading it, yes, when every morning when your church sings a song, they pay the person who wrote that or who owns the copyright to it a licensing fee to do that. If that church is being live streamed, like a lot of churches are, they pay an additional fee. Now, sometimes those fees vary. A lot of times you're not actually paying each time what we call right. in the in the intellectual property business a la carte. You're not paying one off like you got to pay $4 today. You're probably paying a, fat, a flat fee of a couple thousand i'm not sure how much it is but you're paying thousands of dollars probably for uh the right to play that song it used to be you paid you you paid mainly for the sheet music which made sense because you're actually helping that person who put out the sheet music so everybody in the worship band who had to follow notes could uh play and this is why most um most of the time you'll talk to people that are in like the the music aspects and they'll ask well are you a bethel church or are you a hillsong church and usually it's because well your church has only got the funds that they've allocated Correct. towards one particular section so um you can pay for the songs from bethel or you could pay for the songs from hillsong um and so they kind of some churches pay for both and they do it both ways but some churches are like we're just playing bethel songs or we're just playing hillsong songs um yeah they so mentioned they in here it's pretty much from. everyone's either pretty much every mainline church let's say non-denominational sort of evangelical or evangelical church is singing from either bethel Hillsong, maybe Ma Maverick City, and I think there's one more that we're not yeah. thinking of. That, that, but there's only about there are literally four or five uh, publishing companies or groups that are generating most of the music, and they are making a killing, a killing on it. Yeah, uh, Hillsong. So you say, okay, where did this money go? Where does the money go? I don't know where it goes to Bethel. I can tell you that for Hillsong United, it went into a... Yeah, and there was that documentary series, right? That Yeah, that I finished watching, and I can... Well, I mean, you want to talk about it again? Yeah, let's talk about it, because I think... Where the money went was to start new... It turned... Hillsong became a franchisee, no different than McDonald's or Chipotle or Arco gas stations, if you're on the West Coast. East Coast, let's say, whatever. Think of a, think of a franchisee. That's what Hillsong did. It took all the money it made out of the music, and it poured it into, we're going to start a new, we've now, we just started a church in New York City, now we're going to start a church in Boston. Now we've started a church in Boston. Now we're going to start one in Denver. Now we've started one in Denver. Now we're going to go start one in Houston. And each time they do, they're doing it with largely unpaid volunteer wor uh, workers. And or vastly 
underpaid workers and they're working these people, these young folks to death. And that's where a lot of the money going. And then it was also going to Brian Houston and his family, a lot of it, and his board back in Australia. A lot of it was going there. And in some cases, maybe some of the pastors and some of the larger churches around the world. They had churches all over the, around, the, around the world. But that's where that money was going. I don't know where Bethel's money's going. I don't know where these other churches are going, putting their money. And look, we've talked a lot about modern church and how we think that model's broken. And one thing, <laughs> one thing you start to realize, uh, I would say the pro- modern church has a problem. Because what's manifest when you watch this documentary on Hillsong is because both in Australia and in the United States, Australia is similar to the United States in uh, in that their the churches are non-taxable, and a lot of churches take that belief that they're non-taxable and that they're somehow outside of the government, and then oftentimes do not follow what one would call modern um, human resources policies because they don't business ethical because they don't think that they're subject to it because they're a church and I don't know why and you say well you know you're you're you can't have it both ways guys you're complaining that these are you know they're 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 these businesses and that's terrible and yet they're not running themselves like businesses no i don't find that contradictory at all uh in fact it's the other way around if churches want to act like businesses and continually work on creating income streams to bring in more money for either legitimate or illegitimate purposes. I mean, 90% of it could be going to fund impoverished people in the third world. You still have to pay for the appropriate overhead to have proper office management, financial management, whatever those things, and, and pay the money that's required in the United States for that kind of position to have quality people to do that kind of work. Yeah. And it's clear that Hillsong was not at all willing to do that. And it's in some part what got it into trouble. Yeah. And I think a lot a lot of times that's why churches in the United States, and this time I'm going to pick on the Protestant churches because the Catholic churches are, are run differently, but the Protestant churches that run, run afoul on so many occasions for sexual abuse, whether it be adult to adult or with children is because there are not proper modern business protocols being followed because, well, we're the church and we just don't need to do that because that's a waste of money or I don't know what it is. I think sometimes it's just outright stupidity and, you know, someone who doesn't have the, the common sense to know that they're not properly equipped to run a modern business and sometimes just willful ignorance of no, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that because that's going to get in the way. That's going to get in my way of running this church. Yeah. And so, but yes, the music is a big part of that. 
uh, it costs. We spend a lot of money every Sunday to be entertained, and people are making a lot of money on it, and I don't know where that money is going. And this is one of the many reasons that I increasingly get more and more uh, disillusioned with church as it state as it stands and i'm not yet willing to walk away and go all in on the home church model sometimes you are where you're at um but i'm going to continue to pound the desk and speak into this microphone and complain about it and say i welcome the day that the the whole thing comes crashing down yeah i think the hard part is just understanding that what we are looking at when we look at church in the sense of what you go to on a Sunday morning, that's not in God's vision at all. Um, I mean, I say that and like, it could be, um, like, I don't like God could have changed his mind in the last 2000 years. And I haven't received the document in the last 2000 <laughs> years. So, well, let's say, um, let's say at the very least he's indifferent. I think he could, he could give, he he could take it or leave it. It's probably my view. And I'm not even the type that's like, we got to get back to Acts and like what right, they were no. doing in Acts. Like that's not like I don't think so either. But also just understanding that okay, um, I yeah, I'm cynical from the standpoint of kind of what we talked about before, where uh, yeah, it's it's this consumer model when you go to church. It's what can you do for me. Um, and the church leans into that, right? Like we have the next step lounge. Like, how do we get you connected? How do we get you plugged in? Um, how do we get you? And for especially our church in particular, they are very adamant about, and you've said it before where you like it, which is not a problem, but the get them volunteering as soon as possible. Right. The reason why is because again, you feel a part of something. And so that, and again, this is something that cannot like I can't not say that this doesn't exist and we've talked about it before there's this spiritual element to our overall health um that we need to make sure that we watch out for and and mainly what that means is feeling a part of something that is bigger than yourself and so when you volunteer at a church there's some sort of chemical reaction that happens in your brain where if you do that on a regular basis you'll feel healthier you'll feel more involved more there's there's something that happens through that process that keeps people away from depression and anxiety and a lot of that kind of stuff because they are feeling like they are contributing to something outside of themselves that's bigger than them. Right. Um, and they're leaving an impact on the world and they're leaving something behind, yada, yada, which is great. Um, but again, understanding that every single thing that happens in the church on a Sunday morning is about consumer and consuming. Okay. We're going to play super hip music. Um, that I don't even like, I don't even show up. Like I, I think we've been over it on this podcast. Yeah. I leave my house at 10 o'clock in the morning. Church starts at 10 o'clock in the morning. But by the time that I get to church, it's 10, 15 and worship is over. Thank goodness. <laughs> and I'm just there for the sermon. And for some of you guys, you guys are like, that's the worst part. Like, I just want to be there for the music. Right. And I get that. Um, I don't get that. I just know who you are out there. Because um, that just sounds awful to me. Um, 
Cause, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't mind being candid on this, on this podcast, and just being like, I don't get it. And you may sit there and say, I don't get it either when it comes to me liking a sermon, but I legitimately don't get it. If the music is crappy, in my opinion, it's crappy. (laughs) But if I'm sitting there and thinking that it's crappy, and you're over there thinking that the sermons are crappy, then why are you going to church? Like, if you're just going for the music for 15 minutes, then go listen to it on the radio. Right. Like, why are you going to church? And you're like, well, and the reason is, and again, this is that idea of the spirituality aspect is you can be there with a bunch of people in a crowd. It's the concert setting where you can all sing together and people feel something from that. That's, yeah. There's something true behind that in what you feel. Um, not biblical, but health-wise, sure. This is something that you can feel, but that's not something that's, again, it's not biblical. So on a Sunday morning, the the music section, and you could make an argument that the pastoral section nine times out of ten isn't biblical, right? Like if a pastor gets up there and just talks about what it means to be a good father in the 21st century, that's not like... And they take some verses that have vague meaning that's associated with it. Like, sure, that's not it either. And so that's what I mean when I say that this isn't something that that God was like, I see 500 people getting together in a church on a Sunday morning and doing this. And he may be thrilled by it. He may be like, oh, this is awesome. I'm saying that it's so non-personal um right we've talked about this before where if i go to a church and i don't if i go to neighborhood on a sunday morning yeah and i don't see you there i don't talk to anybody right i don't talk to a soul i try to leave (laughs) i'll sneak out the side gate and just like leave I texted you this week, and I was like, hey, are you here? And you didn't text me back, and I was like, wow, he is a really good churchgoer. <laughs> he is like, I'm not texting in church at all. I was like, wow, okay, because I didn't text him until I had already sat down, and everybody knows after I, what I just said, that was like 10, 15, 10, 17. <laughs> so <laughs> guy on stage is already talking, giving his sermon, and I'm like, hey, Tim, you here? <laughs> and, uh, and no, like, I mean, I go out there, and I'm like, oh, Nobody came and talked to me within the last 30 seconds, which means Tim's not here and I'm out. But it's not personal. So again, like nobody knows who I am. I'm kind of like an invisible person there, which just so we're clear for me personally, that's just fine. (laughs) I don't need any, like I'm an extrovert, but I don't, that's not my realm anymore. Um, and I say anymore because I think at one point it was, but now it has become where I am so cynical and distasteful towards a lot of people in those circles where I just like, I'm like, I'm out. I don't need fake conversation for the next 30 minutes. It's just not genuine. Um, and that being said, I say that. And again, I'm super cynical, 
my wife has been able to find some people that have been amazing through the small groups that are presented at the church and stuff and she's found parents that have like i say this 100 percent. if they ever listen to this podcast i hope that they know that i love how much that they have welcomed my wife into their family because she found this friend she likes her a lot they've only known each other for two years the way the mom talks about my wife is if her and this girl have been friends since they were like five years old like she chats with her about all the stuff that she's interested in um and all that kind of stuff and she gives her hugs and lots of love every single time that they see each other she says she wants to see her she wants to be around uh, my wife and it's awesome like i if i didn't know that they had just met each other last year i never would have known like it seems like they've been best friends and this mom has been watching over her since she was in diapers or something like, and that's amazing. I hope that there's lots of women that are out there doing that for young ladies in churches because that that's been amazing. 100%. Like my wife is like, there will never be a place where I won't have this lady at invited to like, so like she's invited to our baby shower like this weekend and right. all this kind of stuff is like, she, has just made me feel so welcome in ways that other people haven't. And so that's the good part. Um, but again, you have to get plugged in and you have to do all that kind of stuff. Well, maybe you haven't been plugged in. That's what, that's why yeah, you, I don't you don't care. Want... We've been over this. <laughs> I have my own small group that I meet with every single Friday. I will say before COVID they did, then they might still have the group, but you know, COVID just kind of disrupted things for a lot of people. Their Thursday night group at, or at, no, yeah, at the at, at a pita kebab. Pita kebab used to be at Barrel House. So, so the church we go to had a men's group that met. I think it used to be on Wednesday nights, but I think now it's on Thursday nights. And it's well, just trivia is on Wednesday nights. So. Yeah, um, you just show up at a bar and there's no there's no Bible study. I think sometimes in the past they've maybe had something that they discussed, but it's usually it's just you and a bunch of other guys getting together, having a beer or two, and just getting to know each other. Yeah, and just unwinding after your week. Um, which I think for guys is, I would argue, I don't know, maybe it's, it's equally as important for females, but I think for men it's harder to find people like that, particularly in church. Uh, people we find in church are usually tied to a sp- our spouse or something. So, uh, again, I haven't been to that in a while. I did like just start to meet some guys, and it just didn't stick enough once COVID hit. To and like I said, our church is so big. There are people I know go to our church on a regular basis. I never see them because we have three services, and it's just that's just the way it is. And that's the way it is at any large church. Yeah. And large church, by the way, is like. 400 people or more, 300 people or more, but ours is probably on a weekend, a thousand, um, probably 4,000 on a big holiday. Um, I think that's what the number, anyway, uh, I would push back a little bit on the worship. I totally get that it doesn't resonate with you. I don't think it's unbiblical for a group of people to emotionally get, get an emotional, reaction to the spirit and kind of corporately feel that i think i think there is something of value i don't think it's i i, I do think it's even yeah, biblical I, I so let me but let me, i think 
I think in the I think I will say this. I think one thing we don't talk about is that also though and maybe this is where you're going with this. A lot of that is cultural and I think that kind of worship was more like corp what we what in church circles we, church circles we would call corporate worship was a thing in the in Bible times, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, it was common for people. You didn't have professional musicians per se, or even if you did, they. But it was everyone was engaged in singing or dancing and all that kind of thing. It was all kind of you did it together. Yeah, but even then, like, okay, so this is where I was going was okay. So I wouldn't say that singing in church is unbiblical from the standpoint of like being a part of a collective that experience or whatever like and hopefully i tried to convey that where i was like i get that aspect of it but more of the music element itself it didn't exist like not oh no not and that's where i was going like all of you like if you sit there and try to think that even if you're like well duh they didn't have like they weren't able to plug into like amps and stuff but you know there might have been a guy there with like a harp or something and it's like nope there wasn't there wasn't like when people went to the synagogue which is how they still perceived how they were supposed to do church there wasn't like music getting played no there was a there it's still in the, i don't i i assume it's the same word that was used back then it's called the cantor it, all he does is chant out the scripture yeah and that is worship yeah, so when you are thinking worship and you are putting your 21st century spin on it, that's when I'm like, yeah, it's not biblical. <laughs> like that's not. Well, that's true. Like I'm just talking right in out, terms of yeah, yeah. But getting that's a, that's what I was meaning. So I mean, like that's where I was just I was saying like that part where it, because some people are like like this is what is required of us by scripture, and it's like no. <laughs> no. Well, like, and I like... think that goes back to where we agreed with MacArthur but disagreed with MacArthur. Where Mac- MacArthur is yes. correct that modern modern music, not even Christian, but just modern music, let's say starting in the with the radio era, the concert era coming out of the radio era, lends itself itself to a group of people performing. And from a Christian perspective, we have to be mindful that that is problematic because that leads it to that person becoming quote-unquote worshipped instead of who we're supposed to be worshipping right and but where i push back to macarthur is the answer to that is not to go back to some ground zero which he would set as the ground zero of music which is as to your point is not the ground zero for music before whatever he would say is ground zero is gregorian chants and before that it was something else um for a long time, it was families who had the money sitting around singing those songs around the fire as a family. And, and you know, music was taught inside the household. So music's changed over time. You don't, the style of music isn't the thing. It's just to simply point out we need to be concerned, which is what got this whole conversation going again, which is we need to be concerned. It is not sinful for people christians to make money but i do think at some point it is sinful for the church and the music aspect of that to be getting filthy rich off something that shouldn't be making people filthy rich 
I think there needs to be some questioning as to what's going on. And this is not, you could easily write another article about the same thing about the books that, that are written all the time. I still don't, well, okay, so to that point, I don't know if, I think that that's just, because what's happening at the moment is somebody is getting paid, but they are still following the rules, right? And so even if you sat there and you tax them, I'm not saying tax them. Well, I'm just saying because you brought up the tax thing earlier where I was like, even if you tax them, nothing's going to happen. Like that's, that's a oh, I was just talking in terms of churches not being taxed, but I, in terms of oh, the music, yeah, yeah. in terms of music, I'm saying like that's a drop in the bucket. Like, you know, and so oh, and yeah, the. I think. I don't I don't know how to combat that. To where I, look, I would sit there and say, like, hey, we all need to start asking some questions. We all ask some questions, but it's like, I don't know what to do. Because well, sometimes change just happens by people asking questions. And that, that's one of my frustrations right. is you raise a question and someone says, well, how do you solve that? And you say, I don't know. And then it's like, well, then your, your question is invalid. No, a lot of times it takes just people questioning and questioning for a long time until someone comes up with a solution or someone dares come out and say, you know what, we're not going to sell our publishing rights to a private equity firm so they can make a bunch of money. That just looks bad. Yeah, but they wanted to make money off of it. <laughs> they were like, we can sell this. All right, fine. That's the hard part is where it's I like- know. And the article doesn't say where the money went. And I, 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 I have to say that over and over again because I right, have to because- keep it in my mind. That money might have gone someone real, somewhere meaningful. Right. But also, again, they chose to auction it off. No, I, I know. I'm saying maybe they shouldn't have decided to auction it off. But but then the money is still coming in. Like, that's the hard part where it's like the money is still. It's supply and demand. Like, the peop, they saw that there was a demand for this item and they were like, hey, I bet we can make a bunch of money off of this. And so they took it. And the hard part about this type of stuff is it's in an infinite supply as long as you're willing to pay the price tag that they put on it. You mean infinite supply in that? Like licensing. Like anybody could have it. You just got to pay for it. Oh, That's yeah. All it is. I thought like, you meant infinite supply. Like there's plenty of bands out there that'll no, 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 turn no, this no. stuff out. No, 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 no. I'm saying that if you put out a song, anybody can have it at Oh, no. Time. That's. Now, it's not infinite in the standpoint of like it'll be popular for forever. You'll be a hymn before you know no, it. No, but, but. Okay. So that's a good point you brought up because part of this is just a modern. This is a modern technology problem, and I can say that. So if you've heard it mentioned on this podcast before that my day job is <laughs> owning a sports photography company. When I got started in photography, everything was slide-based. Yeah. And I won't go into it in too much detail, but basically that meant there was a finite number of pictures that you as a photo agency had, and when they went out to the client, someone else couldn't use that photo. Therefore, that photo was worth, if they wanted to publish it, was worth $200, maybe on the low end, $500, $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. Once everything got, once slides started being digitized in the late 90s and 2000s, and then the digital camera became prevalent in the early 2000s, 
those and get and got put on the internet that photo then could be used by as colton said an infinite amount of people at any one time you could literally have 300,000 people download and pay for the same photo in the same instant server doesn't care just gets downloaded now what that means for content providers is that photo is now no, no longer infinite. So I can't charge 500 what I was charging before when it was a finite piece of intellectual property. That price goes from $500 to maybe $50. Right. Or $5 or $10. And now I'm no longer in a high dollar, uh, high dollar business. I'm in a volume business. And so now I sell... When I started my company, we probably sold, let's say, 50,000 images in a year. And now we sell several million images a year. And actually, we probably didn't even sell that many. We probably sold a couple, a thousand images. Not even, we're, we're talking the low thousands back in 99, 2000. So that is, to be fair to the, Music business, that is what's going on here is you're going again, they're they're now they're selling the music for cheaper probably than the what they were for the sheet music. But they're selling a hell of a lot more of it because all what they're and and also uh our friend Kellen pointed out to me, they're not technically they're also not paying for the rights to sing the song. Yeah. Although I believe in professional music, let's say if you're U2 and you do a cover of a Rolling Stones song, I think you're still in a concert. You're still expected to pay Rolling Stones a royalty, even though you're doing a cover in a concert. I think that's that's a provision. But what you're actually paying on a Sunday is the rights to publish the lyrics for everybody to read to. Right. Um, but again... Those lyrics can easily be downloaded and put into whatever I was going to say a PowerPoint that's so 2000s, uh, whatever sexy software they're now using on Sundays to make cool graphics with clouds or tie dye going on behind the the words. But um, so, yeah, a lot of this is just. Because things are now at a huge scale and volume, people are making a lot of money, and there's only four or five um, producers. So I'll just reiterate what I what I said earlier or said a few minutes ago. It makes me queasy. I don't think that's what I don't think that's the model we should be comfortable with. Right. I don't know what the model is. I don't even. It's fine for people to get. I do have a problem with people getting filthy rich off the church. I can't, I don't know what that number is. I can't define what filthy rich is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I will right. I will quote uh, Justice Harlan when he was trying to describe pornography and said, "I know it when I when I see it." I would just say if you're in that space, you're a pastor at a big church or a mu- musician who like Lincoln Brewster like. Be very mindful of what you're making. And that's why people like uh, Francis Chan, assuming he's following through what he claims, is he doesn't collect any of the money from his books. It goes 
to other things. Um, it goes to his church, his home church project, or before when he was pastoring a church in Southern California, it went to their church. I mean, and maybe a lot of this, again, is going on. I don't know, but it was not going on at Hillsong. I can guarantee you that. And Hillsong needed to be brought down. I hope Hillsong, I do enjoy Hillsong United's music, a lot of it. Some of it I don't, but there is some that I do enjoy. I hope despite their domination in the circle, I hope they do continue and they don't get brought down by uh, their pastor's infamy. Um, but the Hillsong United franchise system needed to go down, and I'm glad it did. Yeah, all what Tim and I are saying is boycott all that crap music and just listen to you two. <laughs> It goes back to you too. Yeah, that's all it is. Well, I think that's a good. Spot we need then. to meet our new. We need to go meet our new worship arts pastor and say how much money would it cost me to bribe you or bribe Forrest to pay a, play a YouTube song even on Sunday. Know if David knows you too, I'll go talk to him. I'll be like, when I finally go and say, "Hey, I go here. Do you remember <laughs> us?" <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'll ask him. I'll be like, hey, we're wanting to know. Uh, it doesn't even have to be during worship. It can be like play 40 in the middle of communion. Yeah, we're going to do a uh, Yeah, we're gonna do a GoFundMe here pretty soon on the Go to Hell podcast. <laughs> yeah. Where all the proceeds, because again, that's also the hard part of what Tim just talked about is like, yeah, we're not in this to make money, if you didn't know. Uh, we just do this every week, um, and we don't want to get paid, honestly. This is shits like, and giggles. I was like, if you paid us, I'd, send, I'd try to send the money back, or I'd send it somewhere else. I'd be like, okay, this is going to Kenya, go to <laughs> when I grow up or something. Uh, but with, uh, uh, yeah, we'll do, we'll be like, bribe the worship pastor for a U2 song, uh, GoFundMe page. Uh <laughs> to figure out what we got to do so oh maybe i'll make that happen this weekend yeah who knows all right well i think that's it i think it was a good uh that was like an hour and a half so uh yeah 125 we managed to still squeeze out uh there's probably about 10 minutes of yeah people are gonna figure out what the hell we need to talk about next but it was a good episode uh we're a bunch of motor mouths you can just get it started and we can just start riffing so doesn't take much that's right uh we sound like we know nothing about everything so it's good uh if you enjoy the go to hell podcast please subscribe rate and review send us a message at all the places that are listed in the show notes and if you don't like the idea of a gofundme to have you two play during worship go to hell please did you have it wow it's still light outside too did you have it slotted that we were gonna do